Well, um, last week we talked about Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and I want to continue that. Um, Mark, do we have more of those? If you did not receive um, a Psalm 36, uh, 136 exercise from last week, can you raise your hand? Pastor Mark is going to bring those around. Keep your hands up, and uh, he's going to deliver those. If you didn't get a chance to go through this exercise, I really want to encourage you to do this. Spend some time with the Lord this week. Um, and if you didn't, I mean, you, could, you could listen to the sermon and it would give you a little bit more context. But even without it, um, this uh, uh, makes sense. This is a really good way, as Psalm 136 was a psalm for Israel to remember her story and to remember the love of God all the way through, the faithfulness of God through every step of the story. This is a way to do that. And... Uh, um, so what we've done here is to personalize this exercise and think about our own lives and the faithfulness of God through every stage. So I really want to encourage you guys to take some time and go through this exercise if you haven't done it already. And I would love, if you're brave enough, that, that, that you might share this with us because I would love to know uh, what you're reflecting on. Maybe it's just for you. Maybe it's like a journaling exercise. That's what it was going to be for me until I read mine last week. Um, but... Uh, um, th that's totally fine too. If it's just a journaling exercise, but it's a great way to trace the hand of God uh, through our lives. Any more that didn't get one yet? All right. So Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, Jesus, as we said last week, is authoring a story in each one of our lives. And it's important that we examine uh, uh, the subject of finding the story for, for two reasons. One of them is, is that the world really needs our stories. Revelations 12, 10 and 11 says this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, have, uh, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. The story of what Jesus has done in our lives is so important. And it's through the blood of Jesus and through that story, through that testimony, that we overcome. In other words, when we seek to see what God's done in our lives... We're doing it because the world needs to hear those things. And we're also doing that for ourselves. Because we need to hold on. To, we need to hold on to those things. And sometimes we get in really dark days and we don't have anything in the present that we can hold on to. But you know what? We have our own testimony of His goodness. And as we re uh, explored last week, your testimony isn't just your conversion story. Isn't that good news? How many of you guys like me? I told that I have a really lame conversion story. How many of you guys feel like the same way? I have a real lame conversion story. Okay, you still have a testimony because you have a testimony of the goodness of God in your life. And for the vast majority of us, meeting Jesus, like, guys, that's the beginning. There might not be any, like, lightning bolt there. But he's done incredible things through our lives. And that's the reason we stepped out. We zoomed out with Psalm 136. So we could see, get a, a, the, the big picture of the big story of what he's doing. And he's done many more things. Um, so uh, this morning, I'm, I'm, we're going to kind of zoom back in. Like, 
if we've already got those headlines or some ideas of the big thing that he's doing, we're going to zoom back into our story. Because you can take a story from 30,000 feet, or you can zoom in and, and see it from a, a see, see much closer and, and smaller stories. Because you see, our stories are kind of like Russian nesting dolls, you know? got the big one and you can put the littler ones inside and you can drill down and see, man, there's a lot more going on here. And that's a bit like the story of Scripture itself. The story of Scripture, we, we sometimes use the term, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, the meta-narrative. We talk about the meta-narrative. What we're talking about is the big picture of Scripture, the big picture of the Bible. And it, it goes something like this. I mean, if we were going to simplify a whole bunch and get to the core, the root, here's what we see in Scripture through 66 different books written over as much as 1,500 years. We see this. We see that God created everything and, and creation was good. We see that sin and death entered the world. We see that everything was broken. People broke. Relationships broke. Creation itself broke, but Jesus came to redeem all that was broken. Thus beginning the great restoration where all the broken things are made new, including us. That's what we might call the, the meta-narrative. It's the story of redemption, the big arcing story that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And when we wrap our minds around that, when we see the big thing that Scripture is trying to do, then we have room for some of these little stories that you might be wondering, what does this have to do with anything? Stories like Ruth. What is this little romance doing in the middle of the Old Testament? Never thought about that? The, the story of Ruth happens at an incredibly dark period in Israel's history. It was the period of the Judges. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, it is like rated R. It is, a, it is not a book for children. If you have little kids, don't send them to Judges, especially the end of Judges. It is brutal. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, it said, and you see the result of that. S horrible violence, terrible oppression. You've got horrible things happening. And yet in the middle of that, in the middle of that era, you have this woman and her relationship with her, her stepmother, or it's not stepmother, excuse me, mother-in-law, and they have this beautiful bond, even though her husband's dead. And she's a foreign woman, and they move to Israel. And they have no way to be sustained. And then they meet this wealthy man named Boaz, and he shows kindness. And, and, and there's this problem. Can they get together? I mean, it's almost like a Hallmark movie, you guys. Straight, like, can they get together? There's obvious attraction here. Can they do it? Well, there's another guy in line first, according to the, this, the, the Mosaic law. Like, ah, you know. And ultimately, they get together. And it's this beautiful little romance, right? And what does that have to do with the meta-narrative of Scripture? Well, you, you might not even see it at first, but when you get to the genealogy of Jesus, you run into Ruth again. You run into Ruth and Boaz because they actually were the uh, grandmother and grandfather of David and great-great-great-grandparents of Jesus himself. And you see what Jesus was doing all the time, sowing little uh, echoes of the, the great redemption story. There's brokenness, but there's redemption. All the way through, we see little echoes of this. It, it, all through scripture. And you guys, we see this today in our lives as well. Because we, as followers of Jesus, 
We inherit those stories, and we inherit this movement. We inherit the meta-narrative. We are part of that. You see, in my life, probably like your lives, there has been destruction. There has been decay. There has been sin, and there has been restoration. That great drama that's played out, it's played out in my life too. Anybody else? See, there's all kinds of decay, isn't there? There's not just sin decay. There's like, well, I mean, physical decay. I'm getting old, you guys. I pick up my phone and I cannot read anything. I have to get glasses. I went to the eye doctor and he said, oh, yeah, you've got a condition called old eye. That's what he told me. And he was, it was tongue in cheek. It was like, yes, this is, no, this is not a condition. You're just getting old and your eye doesn't work very well. Well, that's, that's decay. <laughs> this is, thing. It's happening in the physical world around us. Well, that happens spiritually too. And the, the only reason we can walk with hope is that we have someone from the outside who's coming in and one day will make all things new and is intervening. So that great overarching story of Scripture is also our story. It's something that we inherit, which is a beautiful thing. So, uh, I want to zoom back in here because what, what we can see is as we have all these headlines of our lives, so we go back and retrace God's hand, we can look at any, any area here where we were in one place and then we're not in the same place. We can look at any one of these places and see what Jesus did and how our contact with him, the great redeemer, has, has done something in our lives and how, is, how it has, he has affected us in a powerful way. I want to, to show what happens. When we encounter Jesus, we cannot help but be changed. And that actually is the core of any good story. If I can get kind of nerdy with you for a second. Storycraft is like one of my favorite things. It, the, the, the real plot of a book or of a movie isn't just what happens. That's not the plot. The real plot is about how the main character changes through what happens. How he or she is affected by these things. So what's happening in our lives is we're encountering hard things, but then we're encountering Christ himself. And in the process of, go, of walking through these things, we find ourselves changed. Well, by way of example, I want to look at uh, the New Testament. Let's look at some people that were changed by encountering Jesus. The first one was the guy we mentioned last week, the man born blind. Remember this guy? It's quite a story. He caused quite a stir just by getting healed. He didn't try to make any claims except, I was blind, but now I see. It's too long of a story to read again, so we're not going to do that. But here's basically what happens. He sees Jesus. Jesus spits in the ground. He makes this paste with the mud he sticks the mud in his eyes, and then a guy goes and washes his eyes, and suddenly he can see. Crazy. By the way, how weird is that? What, you imagine being like Matthew or, Mar, or Matthew or John or somebody, and being like, uh, "What are you? What are you? What are you doing right now?" <laughs> That's kind of gross, Rabbi. It's <laughs> like, hang with me. But he didn't do the same thing all the time. In fact. In Mark 8, he has another encounter with a blind man where he does something different. 
Here's what happens. Mark 8, 22 through 25. They came to Beth Bethsaida, not Bethesda. Apparently I said Bethesda first. Bethsaida. And some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him to the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus said, you have old eye. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. So we have another instance of healing, but Jesus did something different. Did you catch what he did? Two times. He touched him twice. That might not seem very significant, but hang on. Here's another one, Luke 18. 35 to 42. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Command uh, him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, "What do you want me to do for you?" And he said, "Lord, let me recover my sight." And Jesus said to him, "Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well." And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Each. Each of these three men encountered Jesus and received beautiful restoration. But Jesus did it in different ways. The first one, he sticks mud in his eyes. The second one, he does that, but he touches him twice. This one, he doesn't touch him at all. He just says a word. You guys, we all have a part of the same big narrative of Scripture. But our individual stories will be different, and, and that's okay. In fact, we need to tell them precisely because our stories are different. The world needs to see a lot of different ways he works. Now, let me ask you, what if these three men were alive today? And they sort of, well, something big happened in their lives, so they decided to all start ministries based on their particular experience. You might have the first guy, he might have a ministry called Muddy Spit Ministries. The slogan, we're made from mud, what's a little more? The second guy doesn't like that because that's not his experience. His experience is different, so he has, he has double-touch church. Two taps is twice as nice. Twice the grace, right? And the third guy could start his own international ministry. Hands-free healing international. Healing blindness while staying socially distanced. <laughs> this is how denominations are formed. <laughs> Somebody has an experience with God and then tries to universalize it. And say, this is how God works. He does this. This is how Jesus heals. He spits in the mud. That's the way he does it. Don't try to tell any different. But here's the thing. Jesus does a lot of different things. Things. And we need to not only be okay with that, we need to embrace the way that he's worked in our lives. You guys, because it's significant. 
What he's done in your life looks different than what he's done in my life. Rather than that making us want to step back and shrink back and like, ooh, my story doesn't match. That's why we need your story. See? Because he's done something different. He's doing something unique in your life, and that's why this is important. The world needs to see the many beautiful shades of how Jesus works. Now, you have three men here that are all healed. And what that should tell us is that sometimes, not, not that Jesus always does it a certain way. All that tells us is that, you know what? Sometimes Jesus heals with mud. Sometimes Jesus heals with two taps. Sometimes Jesus heals with a word. And then sometimes Jesus doesn't heal the eyes, but, but brings joy and grace and comfort and is glorified in that person's life with the promise that one day all things will be made new. But based on our experiences, we might latch on to any one thing that happened in our life and say, this is all that's real, because this is all I experienced. I did this years ago when I was in high school with a good friend of mine. Oh, you guys, I was such an idiot. Good friend of mine was telling me about how God had intervened in her life one day and how he had come through in the supernatural way. And we're sitting in her car just like she's telling me this story and it was this beautiful story. And when she was done, I said, you know what? I'm sorry. I just don't know if I could accept that. What you're saying kind of scares me. You know why? Because God's never done that for me. What kind of arrogant nonsense answer is that? God didn't do it for me, therefore it couldn't be real. Staggering amount of immaturity there. But I think that's sort of the spirit of the age, isn't it? No, this is what God does. How do I know? Well, because he did it with me. So that's what he always does. It's like, that's what happened here. That's not necessarily what's happened here. You guys, we need a lot of stories. We need to see the many beautiful ways that God works. Sometimes he heals the eyes through mud or, or touches or, or a word. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he shows up in surprising, beautiful ways instead. My son Sam is going to turn 13 in a couple of months. And uh, this, I, I think of him, I, I, I'm sure a lot of you guys remember this, but maybe some of you don't remember this. Sam was born in, in California when we were still in Youth of the Mission. And when he was born, we listened to his heartbeat. And it didn't sound like a regular heart. It sounded like Darth Vader breathing. Like, like, that's not the way a heart's supposed to sound. And so our doctor, we lived in the sticks, and our doctor's like, you need to go to San Francisco to a cardiologist and get this checked out. Because I don't think this is a good thing. So we went down. And my wife and I, we already had three kids before Sam. And, and, and you know, uh, we hadn't had major crisis, and the stuff with Jack hadn't hit yet. And, and we, we go into this, the, the hospital after we get the, the echocardiogram. And we, we get called in the cardiologist's office. And he's sitting in this big desk in front of this huge window overlooking Golden Gate Park. And I step into the room and I can feel it. Something is wrong. And he tells us, why don't you guys take a seat? I didn't take a seat. I walked over and put my hands on the back of the chair. And he looked up at me and he said, you should sit down. 
And I still remember that moment and that feeling of like, I think this is what crisis feels like because I hadn't really known crisis before. So I sit down and he tells us that Sam has a condition called Tetralogy of Fallot, that he has a hole between the two chambers of his heart, make, making the, the blood uh, mix, the oxygenated blood mixed with the other. And it was a serious condition that required an open heart surgery to patch between the chambers. And if we didn't do it, well, I mean, we had to do it. That's the only way that he would survive. But uh, um, he didn't want to do open heart surgery on a newborn baby for obvious reasons. He said, uh, I want to send him home with you. I want to wait till he's a little bigger. But here's the thing. You're going to have to watch this child. Here's the instructions he gave us. This child is not allowed to get sick. We already had three kids. Kids get sick. And we're going into the winter. And the other instruction was this. Oh, by the way, this child's not allowed to cry. <laughs> if he starts to cry, he could expend too much uh, uh, breath, too much oxygen. He could turn blue. He could pass out. He could suffer brain damage or worse. And so we take our little son home. And for the next, for, for months, he's sequestered at home in a little cabin with my wife, not allowed to see anybody else because of germs. And every time he starts to cry, the whole house gets tense. And we try to just cheer up the baby, cheer up the baby, silent prayers, oh Lord, please, 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 please. And I remember during that season, praying and praying and praying for healing. In fact, there was one incident that's taken me years to grapple with. There's... There was a, a group that came in and they were, you know, praying for healing for all kinds of supernatural things. And, and the guy gets up and he gets the microphone. He didn't know us at all. But he says this, I feel like the Lord's given me a picture of a tiny heart and a little pinhole in it. Does that make any sense to anybody? <laughs> I'm standing in the back like, oh my gosh, everybody turns and points. They start praying for me on his behalf because, of course, he couldn't be with anybody. And I'm getting these prophetic words that he is going to be healed. And, and as soon as they're done, I run home. In the, I'm running home in the dark. I get the stethoscope. I'm shaking. And I put it on his chest. And I listen. And I still hear Darth Vader. So he didn't get healed. But we keep praying. He's not getting healed. But for six months, you guys, my baby just didn't cry. He would start. And some kind of peace would happen and he wouldn't keep crying. There's only a couple of times I can remember where it went on for longer than a few minutes and we all got really, really tense. But he didn't cry. And six months later, we went back down to San Francisco and we handed him over to this nurse. And you hand over a six-month-old for open-heart surgery. That does something. <laughs> he goes behind those doors. But something happened that day with me, and it was this. As we're waiting and waiting in that waiting room, and I'm reading a, a book, I put the book down, and I realized something. I realized that I am totally and completely calm. That I'm so very relaxed with this, this firm belief that my son was going to be okay. 
and I thought, oh no, I broke. I'm emotionally broken. Something happened. Something happened. I snapped. My, my, my baby son is having his most vital organ cut into by somebody with a knife doing something I don't understand. And they're back there doing that thing and I don't feel any apprehension. And I felt like the Lord whispered to me, this is the peace that passes all understanding. They sent us home saying it was a successful surgery, but he's going to have to have surgeries every five to ten years to fix the leaky valve. It's never going to be right. We don't know what to expect. We don't know whether he'll be able to, to you know, run around, to, be, to play sports, to anything like this. We just don't know how he'll be able to handle the oxygen stuff. Well, it's been 12 and a half years, and he hasn't had any more surgeries. And he's not only running around playing sports, but I mean, he's, he's running, he's running cross country. He's, we climbed Spencer's Butte yesterday morning, just me and him, and I was huffing and puffing the whole time, and he would have just run up, I think, if he could. My son is fine. By the grace of God. So what did I just tell you? Not that he experienced a supernatural healing like we would want and expect, but you know what? He was healed through doctors. He's going to have to have some restorative things, but it's so much less than we ever thought. So much less. He'll probably only need one other surgery, and that will be it. But he was healed through doctors, and, and, and to me, that's a beautiful, incredible gift, and I tell you that today because many people will feel ashamed thinking that God didn't heal me or heal my loved one in the way that I had prayed for. Therefore, I don't have a testimony. I'm here to tell you, yes, you do. Yes, you do. God does things in different ways, friends. Jesus acts and he loves us in all kinds of different ways. And this healing one is a really touchy one often because if you haven't received the healing that you've prayed for, and I'm also in that boat. You guys know my story. If you haven't experienced that, it's really easy to hold on to this idea that God doesn't heal or that he only heals through doctors and that, that the supernatural, it's not a thing anymore, that the Holy Spirit isn't active. It'd be really easy to hold on to that. But see, that would be simply the mistake of me taking my experience and universalizing it. And I don't have the freedom to do that because Jesus is bigger than my experience. And in the same way, you could, you could be thinking, man, here's, here's what Jesus did for me. He healed. And so therefore, he's going to heal everybody. And then we end up making promises. And Jesus is like, I'm actually not going to heal in that way in this case. In this situation, I'm going to pour out so much grace, you can't even believe what I'm going to do in and through you. And sometimes that's the way Jesus works. And one day he's going to make all things new. But I can't guarantee he's going to do that thing just because he did it over here. Your story, friends, is unique. And there is beauty in it. You are living under the meta-narrative of redemption. Jesus Christ is our hope. Not only the hope of the ages and the hope of Scripture, but our hope today. And the way he encounters us could be completely different than the way he encounters your neighbor. 
And that's exactly why we need to hear your story. What I'm saying is that the world needs our testimonies, guys. And I think sometimes we shrink back for all these different reasons. But I want to tell you, the things that God's done in your life, they're powerful. And the world does need to hear them. It doesn't need a whole bunch of apologists up there railing about all the arguments about why. I mean, those are good. Those can be really, really good things. But when Peter calls us to, 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 to give the reason why we have hope, he's not talking about those things primarily. He's talking about what God has done in our lives. There's a reason why I'm hitting this so hard. As a pastoral team has been praying this year, we really felt like the Lord was pushing us to, to, to share our faith more, to share our stories more, to not hide, but to be bold about who He is and what He's done. And so we're going to kick off a whole series of, of videos, and hopefully we'll just be able to continue to do these. But uh, rather than rather than sitting and explaining too much, uh, we have a video testimony uh, this morning. And this is just an example of, of what we're hoping to do. But uh, this, is a, this is a powerful word here, and I just want to encourage you guys to listen to, to what God has done in Carly Davis's life and think, he's so good, what has he done in, in my life? Let's watch. My name is Carly Davis. So five years ago, we had three kids. We felt like we knew what we were doing. We were doing a fairly good job and we thought, let's, let's up our game a little bit. <laughs> let's, let's go to the next level of parenting with children in foster care. We told our boys, you know, we're like superheroes. We're stepping into the lives of these kids to save them. We knew that foster care wouldn't be easy. We knew that bringing kids who were um, experiencing trauma wouldn't be easy. And they talked about it in our trainings, like, oh, this is gonna be hard. It's the hardest thing you've ever done. And we thought, it's fine. We've done hard things. We can totally handle this. We knew it would be hard, but we didn't have any idea what we were getting into. We were in the trenches. It felt like we were always in the middle of a battle. I'd have this kid screaming at me, like screaming in my face, I hate you, I don't want to be here. And I'm speaking to them like, you are valuable, you're loved, you're safe. And in that moment, there's like, who's, who's saying it to me? Who's telling me that I am doing an okay job? It didn't feel like we were superheroes anymore. I felt alone and tired and overwhelmed and honestly like hopeless. Like every day it was like, oh, well I failed again <laughs> and it's gonna be just as bad tomorrow. There was always a drink in my hand at the end of the day because it was the only thing that made me feel less. It started out, like, it started out just with, oh, you know, people drink a glass of wine at the end of the evening and it's a way to wind down or whatever, but 
eventually it was, it didn't feel like it was quite enough. And two glasses of wine is a lot of wine. And that eventually wasn't enough either. I found myself going to alcohol to get rid of big, ugly feelings that didn't feel so pressing when I was sitting on the couch with a drink in my hand. We'd go, we'd show up at church on Sunday and it was almost even more isolating because it didn't feel like there was anybody that I could say, hey, I'm actually really struggling because everybody thought I was doing so good and it felt like I would be letting people down. I had to come to this realization that I can't keep medicating. I cannot keep doing this. Jesus is the only way that I'm going to get any freedom in this area. So I started um, seeing a counselor, which I recommend for everyone, whether or not you think you need it. And it was probably life-saving. Finally, someone who could give me all of these practical tools, but also was praying for me and saying, I'm here to help you. And so is Jesus and you need to be going there first. And I'm gonna give you these tools to help you. I got back to a place where I was talking to Jesus again and not just crisis prayers, but real communication and communion with him. And that's when I realized like, I'm not actually doing this by myself. I don't have to medicate. I don't have to dull pain. He's with me every day. He's here with me. He's here parenting with me. He's helping me through all of these hard situations. In the middle of all of the chaos, I was always thinking, why did we do this? Why did we bring so much trauma into our home? But now on the other side of it, like all I can see is what God was creating. He was creating this beautiful family. I'm so thankful that God puts us in families. I'm so thankful that he gave us our boys, that we have this amazing privilege of raising them to know Jesus. It, it wasn't an ideal situation, but he chose us and he created something really precious and beautiful out of brokenness. And he, he brought us together. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful story. I am so proud of Carly. She was happy that she wasn't going to be here this morning because <laughs> then she'd have to face all of you and try not to cry as she was doing that. Um, but uh, I just thought that was such a beautiful story. And I, um, I just want to invite you guys to go to that vulnerable place. It doesn't have to be like this. It could be very different. In fact, please let it be different. Let your story be your own. But it's important that we go to that place, at least with the Lord, that vulnerable place to say, Lord, what are these things that you've done in my life? Where are the places 
that I've cried out to you? Where are the places where I thought I couldn't keep going, and yet I kept going? <laughs> what are the places where you came through in un unexpected ways? Lord, where have you been in my life? Because you guys, I guarantee you, the things that he's done, it's going to encourage you and it's going to encourage the world. So corporately, we're going to do more of this. We're going to do more storytelling. If you have stories that you want to be able to share, please come talk to me because I want to be able to start doing this often and, and, uh, and giving us a way that we can show the world about the goodness of God. But whether or not you're ever going to sit in front of a camera, I, I promise you this will be a powerful thing to invite God's investigative eye into your heart and be able to give him glory. Amen? Amen. Can you stand with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you that you have never, ever left us or forsaken us, even if we felt like you have. We thank you, Lord, that you've called us to do difficult things that have been far more difficult than we thought they would be, but your grace has been sufficient. We thank you, Lord, that even though we've faced hunger and sickness, even though we've faced all kinds of darkness, you have always been there. And Lord, I pray that you would highlight those ways. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it is you've been doing. And Lord, we thank you that through all of it, your love endures forever. Your love endures forever. Your love endures forever. If you guys need prayer for anything, I want to invite you forward. Prayer team is here to pray with you. And I want to encourage you, please, please, take time this week. Take time this week with the Lord and ask him to point out what he's been doing. I promise you, you're going to be blessed.